Hello, and welcome back to the Strangewater podcast. Once again, thank you for joining us for today's conversation. On this show, we've spent a lot of time talking about the recent developments in the ZK cryptography ecosystem. As we take our first steps into what we all hope to be the next great crypto market cycle, We've gotten the opportunity on this show to speak with many of the companies who will eventually join the giants of the previous cycles, giants like Coinbase or Alchemy. And this is happening now because now in 2024, it's becoming painfully clear just how transformative ZK is for blockchain. Briefly, here's how I'll summarize it. ZK cryptography can be used to prove that a specific computer program generated a specific output. When the program runs, it also generates a proof, which, when validated, mathematically guarantees that the result was valid and produced honestly. Computationally, proof verification is orders of magnitude simpler than actually running the computation. And so ZK allows a resource-limited system to access the resources of a non-limited system. Blockchains inherently are resource-limited systems because keeping system requirements low is essential to decentralization. So to put it all together, ZK can be used to augment the resource-limited environments of blockchains with near-unlimited computing power and with modern resources. The world is wide open because it doesn't matter how much computation your application needs. As long as it's got a ZK proof, it can exist on chain. As I said, today this insight is clear to so many people that we're seeing an entire subcategory for venture capital. But for O1 Labs, developers of what would eventually be called MENA protocol, this vision was clear back in the pre-pandemic times. Founded in 2017, MENA Protocol answers the question, what would happen if you designed a blockchain with ZK woven directly into its DNA? Which brings us to today's guest, Steve Pack, head of product at O1 Labs. After walking through Steve's background at Cloudflare, we learn what MENA protocol is and how it works. Then we'll talk through how MENA and Ethereum will continue to grow and to grow together. And make sure you stick around for the end, where Steve talks through how O1 Labs will bring ZK technology to Optimism and the OP stack. This is a super fun episode, and I know you'll enjoy it. One more thing before we begin. Please do not take financial advice from this or any podcast. Blockchain and ZK cryptography will change the world one day, but you can easily lose all of your money between now and then. Okay, let's bring on Steve. Steve, thank you so much for joining us on the Strange Water Podcast. Hey, Rex. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course, man. I've been so excited to be talk, uh, talking to you guys at O1 and about MENA Protocol. I mean, that's like the OG, like beating heart of uh, ZK and blockchain. So super excited to dig into it. But um, before we get into, you know, crypto and blockchain and all that stuff, uh, I'm a huge believer that the most important part of every conversation are the people in it. So with that being said, can you give us a little bit about your background, like how did your career start and how'd you find crypto? Yeah, sure. So I've had a varied career. I was a full-time software engineer and engineering manager for between 15 and 17 years. So I definitely come at it from that, like, you know, hands-on keyboard tech guy. Um, but I always had interest in, in various things. Um, I was an entrepreneur after that, um, shipped a, a hardware product. Um, and it was after that, that I got into like really sort of Silicon Valley product management, I would say, with uh, five years, five years at Cloudflare. Um, so that that was kind of like the professional road leading to a full time career in crypto. Um, but yeah, like many of us, you know, had been sort of in and around the edges and like experimenting, observing, um, you know, all of that sort of throughout that that period. Um, 
actually, if I remember back, the first the first sort of crypto thing was um, a colleague of mine at a at a finance startup saying, Steve, there's this new thing called Bitcoin, and its value can't go down because there's a limited supply. And and I quite patiently explained that like, well, it can because there's supply and demand and the demand can go down and that could be because of technology risk or because of regulatory risk or people just don't want to use it. And one of those things like I, I was right, <laughs> but uh, was was kind of wrong um, in terms of like those those risks don't matter, um, you know, and it went on to be wildly successful, obviously. So that was my first um, little exposure. Um, I remember actually at that same role, someone into crypto generated Ethereum addresses with like people's names in it. Um, you know, I've got an email somewhere with a with a wallet with my name in it, like or at least whatever ones fit into the you know the letters they used. Like yeah, five for S. I don't yeah. know what a T is, but yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. With with an ETH that is like in some email server. Um, yeah, and then like just like you know, like I said, I was a I've always been a tech guy, right? Like you know, before I became more product focused, and so I'd always observe the the technology, and I'd like take a look and it'd be like, okay, this this stuff's cool, like, but you know, what what can I do with it? And you know, I kept sort of dipping in and out. I guess like each time there was a new wave. Honestly, like you know, like many, like I was a bit of a victim to the hype cycles early on. Um, and yeah, it just became this trend that like each time I would dip my toe back in, there was more and more you know, real world utility, more interesting use cases and, and, and more and more stuff happening. Um, so yeah, that was the sort of crypto on the side before it became crypto full time. Well, I, that, that's super interesting. So full disclosure, I joined crypto in 2021. So I'm very Welcome. young, but thank you. <laughs> um, and I entered, uh, you know, I have a corporate finance background. I entered thinking that like this technology here was here to change finance. And the kind of deeper I've dove into it, the more I realized like, yeah, I don't know. I mean, maybe this is here to change finance. Um, but like, quite frankly, I think like the interesting parts are about like literally transferring value and immutable ledgers and not like crazy esoterics. Um, but I'm still here and like even more passionate and, and believe more in this because to me, the story of really Ethereum, but let's just call it blockchain is the story of decentralized computing. And it sounds like you, you, your finance friend who, by the way, I would love to know where he's working so that we don't put money there. But um, it sounds like your finance fan really your finance friend really tried to bring you in from the, you know, hard money store value, like all this stuff. And you were not interested in that. But with with each hype cycle came more and more of the capability and like this vision of distributed compute that is like, quite frankly, kind of obvious today. And so I'm curious, like, what was the first moment where you realized like, oh my God, this is going to be an important primitive and an important system, just like the internet is. And like, I need to pivot to this as opposed to kind of like a fun toy that like you may or may not be willing to spend some free time on, but like you also have a job. Man, that's hard to answer because it's like, you know, it wasn't sort of a, an epiphany or, um, and, you know, I think a lot of people maybe in crypto, maybe this is true for a lot of people, but not everyone maybe says it. It's like, <clears throat> there were various times where, like it was clear to me that there was something here, whether it was Bitcoin as a you know store of value or as a, in, a, in a hedge against you know fiat mismanagement, um, and then the sort of like yeah, distribute yeah, decentralized computing, um, you know, to all all that stuff, right? And and my um, commitment is tested, right? Each time, like you know, there's a blow up, whether it's regulatory or whether it's you know just the like. The, the Celsius types of things, you know, um, but I guess like, yeah, as time goes on, right, like my, um, mm, uh, not, not, not commitment, but yeah, my, the, like my level of belief that like this is here to stay and it solves real problems, um, you know, it gets stronger each time. And, you know, I'm, I've been based in the US for a number of years and, you know, all it, at least in the, for the Bitcoin use case, like, you know, all, all it takes is to go onto the treasury website and take a look at the, the level of issuance to think that, like, yeah, like people are asking real questions about like, is, you know, is this sort of um, way of managing a, a budget like sustainable? And if not, like, what is the hedge against it? And, 
think their answer, many part answer to the problem and many part answer to the like how to hedge against it. But I think more and more Bitcoin is, is, is part of that answer. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And I guess before we like really transition into crypto, um, I would love to talk a little bit about your time at Cloudflare. Because um, I think that what we're building here is about core infrastructure and the next evolution of the internet. But since I have the opportunity, I have to ask someone who like really saw the insight of like the current version of the internet. Um, like what what insights and what lessons did you like pick up at Cloudflare that you think are really applicable to building in Web3? And yeah, like how did that experience like really give you a leg up uh, versus people who maybe didn't work at like these big tech companies or maybe came to crypto like straight out of university or without real experience? I think there's three like three things that really come to mind, which is like, you know, product management at a, at a, at a big company. Um, there's the like crypto insights I got. And then there's like just being at the sort of pointy edge of like the big bad internet and like the technology. Um, so, you know, firstly, product wise, like, you know, like I said, I'd be in software, I'd, you know, I'd run a company, like I, I knew something about product management, but just, um, you know, Cloudflare had great discipline of like, you know, like <laughs> sounds obvious, but talking to customers and over and over and over again. And like any doubts you had, like you answered by talking to more and more customers until you got that feeling in your belly that like, this is the thing that I need to build. And, you know, I, I sometimes talk to PM candidates or, or other product folks in the industry. And it's like, there are insights you get from looking at data. And it's like, you know, does the blue button or the red button convert better? And like, you know, those are nice. And that's fun. It's nice when you can like, really just do. But most insights come from like, you know, talking to developers, talking to people like whoever your customer base is, and hearing the same thing 10 times, getting that feeling in your belly, like turning that into a product insight that you share with those people, and then you go. build it. And so just that, like, you know, relentless customer focus, um, and prioritization, right? You can only, you know, of those things that you find out, you can only work on a few of them. You know, that that's what I got, I guess, from that. It was kind of my like, you know, Silicon Valley product training, I think, um, and very, very grateful for. Um, another one was, and this this helped make the jump, was um, like crypto companies would be Cloudflare customers, um, but like not in the same way that many um, uh, other companies are. So like lots of, like Cloudflare started as this self-serve, you know, like um, individuals could use it. There's a free plan, there's a $20 plan, and then there's like enterprise. I use it for free. Yeah, right? Like um, it's a great service. Um, but like <laughs> so many crypto uh, companies started by putting down a credit card. And then all of a sudden, like that credit card was running up like thousands and thousands of dollars of usage fees. And like the sales team were like, what the hell is this? And, you know, they kept finding it's like, hmm, RPC gateway and like, you know, um, block explorer and what, and, and they didn't know what it was. Right. And so there was kind of like this, who knows about crypto? And, you know, there was a group of us obviously who did. And, um, so we sort of, sort of like, you know, the company discovered crypto as a good customer base and a rapidly growing one kind of by accident. And then, you know, started to invest like a bit more in it. So I guess I could see like the growth trajectory just by, by that, right. That like this whole new customer segment came up. And then like the longer I was there and as I was in more senior roles and started to look at like strategic sort of partnerships with crypto companies, um, you know, we were getting asked to like, look at what would it take to, um, to add sort of some of Cloudflare's distributed compute footprint to the validator set of, of some, um, you know, crypto companies. And as part of that, it was like, okay, what is the, what is a crypto validator workload compared to like, uh, you know, the, the capacity of the Cloudflare network and, um, what, you know, as part of doing that, like we needed projections, right? Where does, where do you see the volume going and just seeing some of the projected volume from like a number of these, um, you know, projects, it was just clear to me then like, yeah, um, even more like commitment gets stronger each time, each cycle, but it was like, yeah, this is, this is here to stay and it's, it's going to keep growing. Yeah. And out of curiosity, like no need to disclose anything that's like sensitive, but when was the era in which you on the inside of Cloudflare, which for those who are not, uh, knowledgeable is basically like the like skeletal system of the internet, right? At what point did at what era did you start to notice that there was actual like serious, like, you know, global levels of usage from crypto companies? Was this the ICO boom? Was this like the 2020 era? When was it? 
No, it was more 2022. Like that was the the sort of that that bull market run up. Um, you know, we we had crypto customers before then, but they were kind of just like individual customers. Um, but this kind of like, where is all this usage coming from? Like, who are these people putting down credit cards that go from twenty dollars a month to thousands of dollars a month? Like, you know, yeah, that was that was more of a twenty um, twenty twenty two era. Um, actually, I said there were three things. I think I only covered covered two. The the third, um, and yeah, this one's um this one's kind of different. Like. Yeah, Cloudflare is at the edge, right? Like literally, you know, often described as an edge network between the internet and like some some web service. And as that, you kind of get to get familiar with what's on the other side, like what's in out there in the big bad world of the internet. And and the answer is like scary in terms of a whole lot of abuse, a whole lot of bots, a whole lot of attacks, a whole lot of like, you know, the worst possible content you can imagine and people doing the most terrible things you can imagine. And you know, you gotta you gotta find out a way to navigate that to protect your customers from it. But like, you know, Cloudflare tried to also, you know, like walk this line of you know free speech and and following the law and um you know complex thorny issues. And um you know, crypto also has to deal with them. But I, I feel like there's kind of two camps, right? There's the kind of like we're going to ignore that because we're full full scale libertarians versus the like well. In the case of if we're a U if you're a U.S. regulated company, then you know you got to follow the law, and uh, yeah, I guess that's one thing that I was more exposed to there than I think a lot of folks maybe um, you know who have been crypto natives the whole time. Yeah, and and uh, recommendation for the audience for me something that was incredibly eye opening was reading the book Tracers in the Dark, which is really a puff piece uh, of the founding story of chain analysis. And so we can have discussions on if they're good actors or not, but like, you need to understand what goes on the internet and like how crypto is involved in it. And, um, I don't even really understand how, like cloud, how involved Cloudflare is in, in trying to stop that. But like the, there's a lot to like really understand about what's going on. And if you want to be in this space, like it's important to know what we're floating right at the edge of. Um, but yeah, very, very interesting point. It's like everything life's in a trade-off, but you got to know what you're trading, trading off against. Yeah. 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 Good point. So sorry, last question on Cloudflare and then we'll move on. So you said that they, they were first starting to notice like, oh my God, this is like something real around the 2021 two timeframe, <laughs> same time I did. Right. And so my question to you is like, are, are you able to kind of like register SBF happened to all of us and we all experience it in different ways. And for true believers like us, like that was just, well, like there's going to be Bernie Madoff. There's going to be Elizabeth Holmes. Like we had one, like no big deal for a lot of people. It was like, this is the proof we need to show that not one single valid thing happens in this community. Um, how do you think Cloudflare understood not just SBF, but the entire like bear market and like the crash and what was it like for cloudflare to go through their first cycle no it's a kind of a non-event like crypto as a as a percentage of you know cloudflare is like not not large and you know the cloudflare service is you know like dealing with traffic right like rather than tvl or trading volume whatever so like honestly it was probably some customers saw a saw a dip you know, like, um, in, in usage, it, it, not really an event. Wow. Well, I think that's also a lesson to us that like within our own echo chambers, like we're still thinking about SBF and literally no one else has ever thought of him since he, he goes arrested. Right. <laughs> cool. All right. So let's talk about, um, like crypto. And I think, uh, in order to get us to Mino protocol, can you tell us a little bit about like, how did you end up at zero one labs? Uh, yeah. Oh, one labs. Oh, one labs. Big O. Yeah. Got it. <laughs> You know, as I was sort of, um, you know, looking for opportunities to like go full time in this thing that I was, you know, passionate about, um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of chains out there. There's a lot of projects out there. Um, you know, so O1 Labs was very, um, you know, closely tied to the MENA Foundation were the original incubators of the MENA protocol and still the primary contributors. Um, and I just, excuse me, I respected a lot of the, like, you know, the technologists, so the people that I met there that there was it was a true crypto crypto and zk og company that like had launched a chain that like was working on you know the um the newest of the new and like i said you know 
product guy, but from a tech background, like I've got to, I've got to be interested, you know, in the technology and, um, you know, Mina is, is, is fascinating. And so, um, yeah, it was just a good mix of like, a you know, a really interesting technology base with an amazing team, good culture. And, you know, I, I, I saw good opportunities for Mina protocol to really like, you know, make an impact in, in, in the crypto sphere. Yeah. Awesome. So I guess now is a great uh, moment to like, anyone listening to this podcast is already familiar with what blockchain is and definitely familiar with like what ZK proofs are. But can you talk a little bit about what Mina protocol is and how they use ZK proof as a primitive within the protocol to like really change how we think of blockchains? Sure. Um, or maybe in like start at a kind of high level and, 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 and kind of go down from there. Like, you know, if you've sort of interacted with ethereum your you know your experience is like everything's in the open right like you, you dox yourself every time you make a transaction you know you pay five to a hundred dollars in fees depending on um congestion um you probably send your transactions through a centralized service like infura or something and um you know very large validator set very large proof of state network but you know maybe some questions about how decentralized it is and how many like of how much of that validation is done by by small by, by parties um you know don't want to be all negative about like you know that like the, 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 there's a whole lot of positive stuff but like that's that's also the experience right like today and um so mina uses zk to address some of that so one um you don't pay for gas in the in the traditional sense that um that that you do on ethereum and we can depends how deep we can go but um one mental model is in ethereum like you send a transaction and validators execute it and so if it's complex you got you got to pay in gas in mina you do the transaction locally generate a proof so it can be as complex as you like the the trade-off is it'll take a bit longer before you can submit the proof but once you do there's like a constant size um verification cost to that so you know, you don't, you don't have these huge spikes in, in, in fees according to how complex the thing is you're doing. It's, it's, it's pretty constant. There is some variability based on traffic, but, you know, not, not to the same scale. Um, because it's ZK, there's optional privacy so at the application layer. So applications can define, like, you know, these parts of this transaction are private. And so you don't dox yourself every time, you know, every time you do it. Um, and there are still, like, RPC gateways like similar to Infura in, in, in Mina, but they're um, kind of um, optional. It's a lot it's a lot easier to run a like your own node and soon there'll be like a, well, there is already a fully in browser node, but it's not widely used yet. So yeah, it, it sort of uses zero knowledge to like address some of the core issues, you know, I, that a lot of the, you know, crypto community sees, I think with blockchains today and, you know, and did it, did it super early, um, you know, which is, which is very cool. Yeah, so early you've had to go through a name change. <laughs> ah, yeah. Um, yeah, Coda was how it started. Um, not a super interesting thing, though. It was just like it was too similar to some other product and it was early enough. It was it was better to change. So, yeah, cool. So I think like the best way to understand what is like different and also magic about Mina is to like first, like let's talk through how Ethereum works, right? So I love the metaphor, the world computer, because like really what's going on in Ethereum is you have the EVM, which is just like a computing space. And then you send, developers send their code into the space. We call that a smart contract. And then like in order for someone to interact with Ethereum, they're basically saying, hey, Ethereum, remember that code that was deployed before? I want you to run it. I know it's going to cost computational resources to run it. So here's some gas money that represents those computational resources. Run it within the Ethereum, place the answer with Ethereum, and then I will see what was ever placed in Ethereum. Now, that's not how it works with uh, with Mina, right? Right. And and I guess I, I don't want to give the punchline. I'll leave it for you. But can you talk a little bit about how the uh, paradigm is shifted and like where the code lives? And like, I think that's really how you understand where the ZK comes into it all. Uh, let, let me answer it in two parts, right? Um, the first part is that, that model you described with Ethereum, right? Like that kind of broke down in terms of usability, in terms of how um, expensive that was, right? And that's what led to, you know, layer twos as the kind of scaling um, solution. And so to understand Mina, it's maybe worth understanding like how a layer two on Ethereum works, which is exactly the way you described in terms of 
So you deploy a smart contract, you know, someone executes the transaction, um, you know, it gets executed, but like what you do, what, like the first, the first thing to note there is that, um, for most of the L2s today, like they're centralized, right? So instead of having this, you know, half a million computers out there, you know, in the proof of stake, it's like a trusted party. So now you got to trust someone. So you lost some of the trustlessness, um, and they execute the transactions, um, depending on whether it's a ZK rollup or an optimistic one, they send the results of those transactions to Ethereum. So in the layer two version of Ethereum, what's Ethereum actually doing is it's just verifying some zero knowledge proofs from a, from a layer two and saying like, yep, all those transactions check out, checks out, it, it, it looks good, but still with lots of trade-offs. So like, it's interesting that like, you know, the way you described Ethereum, like it's still used like that today. People do do like execute smart contracts, of course, but like the volume has shifted to layer twos, right? And and, and, and the reason is it wasn't scalable in, in, in the way it was. Now, like the way that sort of layer two model is much more similar to Mina, um, except that like Mina is a layer one and you're not having this, um, you know, trusted intermediary that are all at various stages of decentralizing, but no one has got close to like, you know, being there yet. Whereas Mina already is. Okay, so like, what do I mean, what do I mean by that? And what's what's different? So um, if you are in Ethereum, you deployed a contract to Ethereum or you deployed it to a layer two. In Mina, you, you, um, you, you're a smart contract developer, you, you create a contract. Um, and when you compile it, you get a, um, a verification key, which is, um, yeah, kind of just a, uh, a way to like later prove that like some transaction was on this smart contract and you send that key to the chain. So you're not sending the whole smart contract, the whole code, you're just sending, uh, sending a key. And then, um, you know, you create a, like a website, um, and, uh, that it's like a regular looking website, you know, people like log in, they, they do things. And at some point they're going to like execute a transaction. So when they click like, you know, go, <laughs> Um, instead of sending like their name and their balance and everything, like we described before via an RPC to Ethereum to be executed, um, they have the contract that the d d developer wrote there in their, in their browser. And they click go and the browser does incredibly complex mathematics to generate a zero knowledge proof that can cryptographically, cryptographically prove that I ran this contract, I put in these inputs and here is the result. And that might be like, you know, I, I, I did a trade on a, on a DEX and I had a high enough balance and, you know, I, like I have a valid wallet that might be like, what's, you know, you know what's in it. And then the proof goes to the chain. And so the chain now, there's no executing that transaction. All the chain is doing is verifying that the zero knowledge proof is valid. And all it needs to do that is the proof from the browser and that verification key that the DAP developer created earlier. And so, it verifies the proof. That's a constant size, you know, constant complexity operation and an O of one operation. Um, I think maybe it's O, yeah. one, <laughs> o of one or I'm going to look bad. Close enough. Close enough. <laughs> but, but what you'll notice is that what I just described where it's like the proof goes to the chain, the chain like verifies it and, and using that distributed validator set, um, that was kind of like what Ethereum does now for the layer twos, but without of this, without this trusted trade-off of having an intermediary. Like with Mina, it's, it's already a layer one with a very distributed validator set, um, you know, and the full security of no one. Uh, so yeah, I, I think I hit the main things, right? You could make your inputs private. The compute happened locally. Only the proof was verified. So you get way lower fees and you don't have the trusted intermediaries like you do in the, the layer two world. Crypto as it was meant to be. It's really incredible. We'll, we'll get back to this a little bit later, but what what is very fascinating that we're seeing now across all most like legitimate L1 blockchains is like we're all kind of conversing, converging on the same like end state roadmap, which is like you have your base L1 that is really about verification and you invest as much resources in decentralized trustlessness, incredible neutrality. And then we're finding that the magic of ZK allows us to move the actual work away from that L1 network, whether it's in the Mina paradigm or the rollup paradigm or what is a very clearly coming, the app chain paradigm. The idea is like move the computation away and just use the magic of ZK to um, like project the entire computation into the trustless space.
there's details, but like I, I agree, there's some, there's definitely some convergence there on like yeah, the, the models that are finding to be to work. So while we're still in this kind of like walk through Mina phase of the conversation, one of the things that um, is always like been an interesting question for me, and like the, one of Mina's key selling points is that it is not only like the world's most lightweight blockchain, but um, the the chain, I guess, or or the like the, the data load always stays at a constant, I think it's like 22 kilobytes right now. I was just watching a video about how that could drop down to 11 or, uh, but, but my question is like, how do you achieve, uh, you know, a like growing dynamic, like constantly changing state without like the, you know, the data you need to track, uh, changing with it? Very good question. Um, let me, yeah, let me answer it in, in two parts. Like one is like, obviously like, the details of every transaction that's ever executed like over hundreds of thousands of accounts and you know years of, of state it's not all it's like the state itself isn't in that 22k right you can't say give me all of the details that were in this transaction um so it's not like uh, it's not it's not magic magic some magic but not magic like what it does do though is allow you to um like generate a, a proof so as a user to say like hey like um, I did this trade a year ago. I traded this for this. Here's the proof that I sent to the blockchain. And just with that 22K, you can um, verify whether I'm telling the truth, right? So it's like, um, it's enough state there to, um, to verify that any, any transactions that ever happened is included. And it's not magic magic in that you can't, you can't store terabytes of data in 22K but it's pretty incredible that you can verify that anything within this terabytes of data set does fit in that 22K. And um, there's a great video, like, or at least a, um analogy our, um, our CEO uses actually, where it's like, it's kind of hard to believe, but um, it's like, if we took a, like, if we took a Polaroid of this conversation and then like held up the the photo of that Polaroid and took another one, you would see that like, this conversation like was included in the state of the photo right and if we kept taking them like the it's going to get harder and harder to see like what's in each polaroid but you can kind of conceptualize that some part of the data of this conversation or the transaction is included in this this polaroid and it's kind of like that like and that's where the math gets sort of magical but um you know that's the that's the sort of the 22k part and but the the reason that's really cool is that um you know, Mina's um, Mina has a state bridge that's that's getting pretty close to production, actually, and and what that means is that when that twenty two k gets synchronized regularly to Ethereum, then um, anyone who's um, like has a, a, a distributed application in in Ethereum, a DApp in Ethereum, but wants privacy aspects, they can like you know build that on Mina, and the privacy the, the privacy centric parts happen on Mina. And because that sort of that 22k state flows along back over in Ethereum land, if if the user wants to say like I did the trade or I did the vote or I like burned the NFT or whatever it is, they can supply the proof of that to the Ethereum DAP and it can just look up that 22k and say, is this proof in the 22k? And if it is, I'm good to go. And so yeah, it's this like bringing together the like the sort of privacy and magic of ZK over in Mina land to the, you know, the broader Ethereum ecosystem, which, uh, you know, the bridge isn't in production yet, but that's going to be amazing uh, when that lands. So I really want to talk about um, how Mina will like interact with Ethereum in the end game and like wh where you see these two ecosystems uh, coexisting. But before we get there, so what you just described makes a lot of sense, but I have to ask like what an Ethereum would be called the data availability question, which is like, let's say like, okay, so I have like this, like this, uh, let's say like private key on Mina. I've done thousands of transactions. I keep my entire net worth on Mina. And then like my computer for whatever reason is incinerated and I still have my private key. I get a new computer. I load in the private key. I'm ready to boot up. But like, I don't have access to like all the state that I had like generated before. I don't have access to the previous transactions um, in Ethereum that like today exists directly in the call data or we don't need to get into that. But my question to you is 
like how does uh, Mina like make sure that the data needed in order to generate these proofs is available for people that need to generate proofs? That's a good question. It, and it's one that kind of gets pushed to the application layer. So like, like Ethereum, there is some state on, on Mina. So like if, if the state that you need to like recover is, is on chain, then you're okay. But like, it's so limited that for like complex applications, it's kind of, it's kind of not. And so, yeah, it's down to the application layer as to how they solve that. And excuse me, like that's in the past been something like IPFS. Um, you know, there's lots of DA solutions coming out now and like the community's kind of, you know, figuring out like, what's the, like, what's the, what's the ideal. So yeah, I, I think, I guess I'd say like, um, application specific and you know the community and the ecosystem are still working out like what's the what's the best approach there and without like uh picking any names or like committing mina to a future roadmap do you just think it's realistic that like mina ad adapts like the kind of modular data availability paradigm um and like might you know just send that data to somebody like a celestia um is, is that like kind of what an end game looks like yeah yeah yes there will be there will be, you know, multiple DA options for developers to choose from. And yeah, of course, Celestia will be will be one of them. Yeah. No, no. And again, so got it. it. It just sounds like the answer to this is like whatever data availability paradigm that's coming out of Cosmos and Ethereum will find its counterpart in the Mina ecosystem. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, so I, I think like now would be a good uh, part, a good opportunity to pivot the conversation into like the application layer. And like specifically, I'd like to talk about, um, at least from your perspective, or maybe from the research that O of One Labs has done, like what are the use cases that you guys are like particularly excited about that Mina is gonna be able to service like excellently from day one that kind of the rest of blockchain and especially non-ZK blockchain is really uh, not able to service? Good question. Um, I guess I'd take it, uh, take it in two parts. Um, one is like, uh, I think there's a tendency in the industry to like, look at ZK and just say like, ah, oh, privacy. Right. And, and it's, and that's fair because it's like a big problem in blockchain and it's kind of magical, like how it does it. And so privacy is a huge, huge deal. And, and I'll talk about that in a second, but like at least today, if you put like your, you know, hard product hat on like the, in terms of capital deployed and like usage powered by ZK so far, it's actually been in the scaling aspect, like scaling compute and specifically like, you know, scaling compute for Ethereum, um, you know, like uh, ZK roll up. So this um, concept that you can um, compute like arbitrarily large amount, not, uh, like not unlimited, but you can, com can compute large amounts of, um, you know, data. So, execute a lot of instructions on a lot of data and in the end just have a little proof um like that is a scaling kind of magic and um you know so that's that's been the biggest impact i would say of zk like today and you know in mina for many years and then in ethereum in, in more recently as the zk roll-ups start to like get more and more um uh, traction so um you know that's that's a big one, the scaling, the scaling thing. And yeah, that's, um, you know, O1, you know, does, does some work in the area as well. Um, but I think like the privacy one is more interesting at the, um, at the application layer. Right. And there's lots like, you know, you can go down the sort of list, of, like some of the ones I, I find, well, let's just say privacy in general, right. Like that you can, can execute a transaction on a blockchain without doxing yourself. Like that's, that's kind of nice. Um, you know, other like cool things that I like, um, uh, drug, drug discovery is one where not the discovery part, but the, the, the proving. So like, if you're a, like, a um, uh, if you develop new drugs and you want to prove to a pharmaceutical company that you have a drug that like when, um, when that drug is put in this model of the body or whatever organism, you know, it's, it's in that it has this effect and that you can prove that without having to give up all the details of your drug, like it's such a nice, like fit of, uh, of ZK. Um, you know, I really like that one. Um, you know, but the, all of the, 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 ones that get listed off, I think are, are important, like surveys and voting, right? Like, you know, you want to be able to, you know, like vote without 
giving giving up um, your identity sometimes. You know, same with surveys. Um, you know, all of the identity use cases, right? Like, why do I have to give up my passport? Like, and 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 whatever. Every time I want to interact with something, um, that's one there though where I do think that um, there are two types of um, entities there. There is the sort of crypto native like. Give me a ZK, ZKP and, and I'm good. You can do anything. And and then there's the like, okay, what are the regulations in my in my jurisdiction? And is that ZKP gonna gonna help if the law enforcement's knocking on the door and saying, prove to me that you've verified this person? It's like, oh, here's here's a field element. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know, no doubt that like this is the way sort of identity like should be done, and it'll just take time for the other systems to catch up. But you know, being able to prove aspects of yourself without having to give up everything. Um, you know, Oracle, you mentioned, um, I know you, know you said chain analysis, not change link, but, um, you know, Oracle's is another good one, right? It's like, um, you know, we have this such a convoluted system now of like bringing web three data to, to web two, um, both like with financial data where it's like, have this whole separate proof of stake network that people put stake at risk to prove to, to promise, you know, with their stake that that they got this data and it's real and they make it available on chain versus the zero knowledge version where it's like, here's proof that I got this data from this place, right? I got the price of Apple from the NASDAQ or like, you know, I got this trade feed from Kraken and Coinbase and here's proof that I took every one of those trades, um, you know, and put that in a, um, you know, to, to, to calculate a price and that's what's on chain. and. You know, we, one of our um, partners, DIA, is actually, um, you know, uh, doing this. So, yeah, there's there's lots. Um, I don't know. We can we can go deeper into one particular one, but um, you know, there's yeah, definitely a lot of use cases unlocked by zk. Yeah. Well, I'll just drop this in here now, and we will get back to it uh, at the end of our talk. But to me, this is a little bit in the weeds. But um, like to me, the most interesting short term thing for zk is to like just go back and look at all the things that we did optimistically or like in, in some sort of trusted mode while, you know, for scaling or whatever, and just say like any of that, if we re-architect it with ZK, um, like not only will it work better and faster, but we'll actually get the properties of blockchain as opposed to just decentralization theater. Yeah, if we did it like Mina from the start, what would it look like? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I th I honestly think that's fair, and I think that if we were starting, if Vitalik was here, at like, and we're Ethereum wasn't created, and we said like we got to create some sort of credibly neutral computing space, um, like it would be so obvious that this would be the direction we we're going. Um, I think. And to be fair, like I kind of I kind of joke, right? Because the reality is zk was a was a like it existed in, as an academic paper like it wasn't a usable technology and you know like all of the projects out there especially ethereum you know went off and created something amazing with the tools they had and to their credit are like you know constantly evaluating what what comes up and you know retrofitting the parts of the stack in in the order that they think is right so for sure. So I think this is a good moment to like kind of zoom out a little bit or and maybe look forward and talk about like what is the end game uh, relationship between, let's say, we'll make a special uh, section for Ethereum and Bitcoin. We'll make a special section for <laughs> all other just like L1s that will come and go. And then we'll have Mina. Like what what is the end game state um, once things stabilize a little bit? Like how does uh, the technology you're building interact with the world computer. Yeah, good question. Um, hard to predict the future. Um, I think like just to sort of, yeah, paint the whole picture, I think, um, and I kind of hope Bitcoin sort of stays as it is, right? I know there's, you know, innovation around the edges with its inscriptions and stuff, but to me, like it serves a very good use case of a kind of like, you know, a hard, a hard money, like not operated by a central party that, you know, Print, turns on the printer when when it needs to for political reasons. I think like Bitcoin is is a good use case um, as it is. Ethereum, like, uh, you know, it is called the world computer, but um, the direction it's going, it's like it's not really the world's computer. It's the world's like set, you know settlement layer or or the world's like data availability layer, which is a terrible name because no one you know outside of understands it. But like that's kind of where it is going, right? Like that. Um, 
it it is the place where everybody else you know of the, you know the l2s um you know settle settle their data to so like you know is that still the world's computer or, or is it the world's database does it matter who cares like but you know yeah it i think um you know it has sufficient gravity that like it's going to stay where it is in that super important like role but maybe less less compute gets done on ethereum like it gets done you know elsewhere and 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 more it um you know just gets good and efficient at like verifying you know transactions from other um layer twos and then layer threes and, and whatever else um and mina like mina i think is is two things i think it's Mina is different enough in that, like the ways we described earlier, in terms of like you know the, the experience of um, you know privacy of low fees of like you know being truly decentralized, that it will have its own ecosystem of like DApps and you know people that just do their things on 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 Mina, like you know, and you know Mina um, will also have L2s, right? Where um, if for a certain use case, it's acceptable to um, have some partial trust in a in a layer two operator to get like faster block times, more throughput, like whatever else, and they settle to Mina, like that same thing will will exist in the Mina ecosystem. But I think like the big part is, you know, Ethereum, you know, it's gonna be a long time if ever that it has true privacy, right? And so I think like any, any app on Ethereum or layer two that wants privacy in the sort of, you know, short or, or medium term, um, Mina is gonna be a really good um, choice for that. And that, you know, succinct 22K um, of data being available on Ethereum, you know, does bridge those worlds together. Like, and, you know, then the, once that's done too, like token bridges and et cetera will, will come, there'll be like a standard bridging thing. But the fact that you'd be able to um, have applications in Ethereum that have privacy like features that are implemented over on, on in, in MENA world, I think that's going to be a really like important part of, of bridging those, those worlds together. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. And if you'll indulge me for a moment, I will sell you on the world computer vision. And mm -hmm. I, I understand as a caveat, I understand what I'm about to say should not be said to someone working on Mina protocol because you're already ahead of, of Ethereum. But I understand Ethereum as the world computer, but first starting with the EVM being Turing complete, right? Yes, like it's resource constrained and it's not very good and it's not efficient at all, but it is capable of doing anything a computer is capable of doing, including your MacBook, including like Google Cloudflare servers. Like if a computer can do it, Ethereum can do it. Then we say like, okay, but Ethereum is slow and terrible and expensive and like all the things. And then the idea is, okay, like if we keep this space credibly neutral and slow, but we have this magic technology of ZK, which allows us to project outside computing into the EVM. Yes, technically Ethereum is not doing the computation, but like you can call it the world computer because um, it's it's not valid until it like kind of passes through Ethereum. And that is exactly what MENA protocol is doing. <laughs> I, don't, I don't disagree. Like, uh, you know, it. it I, I think that's, uh... That's totally fair. And my point was kind of like, um, you know, okay, let's, let's use this analogy. So two types of computers, an application server and a database server, right? Like one runs lots of business logic. One is really good at storing data, right? And today it's true. Ethereum can and does do both, but the application server part, is getting real, real, really, really expensive really quickly. Right. And so that's why that has moved elsewhere. And as you say, it gets projected back and Look, even even verifying zero knowledge proofs and, and and storing them, that's still doing the work of a computer. It just kind of looks more like a database, right? Or more like a distributed ledger accounting system. And that's that's sort of all I meant was that it's it's well computer role is like, yeah, becoming more focused on the data availability and the verification rather than the computer itself. But I agree. It is still the world's computer. No, no, for sure. Yeah, for sure. No, and I don't uh, mean to like take a counter position to you, but just because I think it's helpful, I I'd love to to tell you what I think um, is the end game of Mina and how it interacts with with Ethereum. And then you tell me <laughs> what you think. But uh, a couple of weeks ago on this podcast, we had uh, the CTO and co-founder of Space and Time, Scott uh, Distra. Sorry, Scott. <laughs> um, and one of the, the conversation we had was, um, turns out that like, if you are to actually do the verification of like a snark 
on Ethereum mainnet. Turns out, like even at a full uh, block, 30 million gas, like you can only verify like be somewhere between like 10 and 15 snarks. And so if we're really like believing in this world computer vision, like th there's an actual scaling problem at the L1 where it's like there's just not enough uh, computation to verify everything we want to verify. And so I said this to Scott and what he said back to me is like, well, obviously there's just like the way we solve this is not an Oracle network, but I'll just use it as a um, similar frame, but like this external network that is, uh, you know, like completely tailor made to just be doing the ZK proofs, the verification to like, um, blah, 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 blah. But as you describe Mina protocol and the ability for the 22 kilobytes to be like sent and live on an Ethereum smart contract so that Ethereum, uh, applications can like look into the Mina blockchain set and like make uh, decisions based on that like to me I, that's the answer like we figured it out like we are going to need mina in order to achieve like the zk future of the world computer yeah no that's an interesting take i yeah i take issue with some of those things there right so uh, one thing i've learned in crypto especially in cryptography right because i'm not a i don't have a math cryptography background but um the details matter a lot right so Say you made a statement, um, you know, 30 million gas, you can verify about 15 snarks. It's like, well, what type of snark? Like, you know, what's the, like, how was the snark created? What was the proof system used? And like, how, you know, how, how efficient have, has, has the verification logic been optimized and the, like, you know, the creation of the snark itself. Um, and then more importantly though, like, so you get some, you can, it's very, very easy in crypto to get orders of magnitude changes, right? Like, so that 15 can become 150 and 1500 and whatever very quickly, like, you know, in things you didn't, and, and it moves faster than you expect. The other one is like, what, um, how much computation does that one of 15 or one of 150 or one of 1500, how much computation does that snark prove, right? And this is where, you know, um, folding in, incremental, incremental verifiable compute, like Mina's like 22K snark, shows that like that that snark is just the output of some arbitrarily large computation size so like yes there'll always be some limit to what the what the layer one can do but like if you're kind of unlimited in what you can represent in that snark then it kind of doesn't matter so yeah there's a there's a lot to unpack there um you know and i, I definitely don't take the draw that line where it's like there's some computation limit on how many snarks you can verify. Therefore, like some separate proof of state verify zero. Like no, like I, I don't I don't see that. The the things more likely I think is you know the L1 continues like Ethereum continues to add like snark friendly things like pre compiles. Um, you know, like it it the the EIP four eight four four right like specifically makes it more efficient for um, L2s to submit blobs of transactions. Like there's a lot of things you could do to make it like super, super, super ZK friendly, right? And so, yeah, I I think we're a long way away from both getting to the, we've fully optimized what Ethereum can do in terms of verifying snarks and that we've fully optimized like the creation of those snarks and how much compute can kind of be behind them and represented by, by that eventual proof. No, fair point. Like totally accept the pushback. And I think um, like, bo both sides are totally valid. Like that, Welcome to the industry where a hundred X comes at you and hits you in the face without noticing. And also like <laughs> only one half of the equation is verification. The other half is like, what are you verifying? And that can probably grow unbounded. Yeah. Plus it's easy to make a point when the, your other interviewer is not here, right? The, the person you interview after me will just tear down my argument. And <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, no, fair enough. So, um, I, we can keep going down this all day, but I want to reserve the last about 10 minutes here to talk about something very exciting, which is the work that you guys are doing to upgrade the optimism stack. So, um, Hard pivot, but would you uh, tell us a little bit about what's going on with Optimism and with uh, O of One Labs, and I think Risk Zero is involved a little bit. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's super cool. Happy happy to talk about it. So, um, you know, Optimism, um, you know, put out an RFP to um, uh, to like zk prove the the OP stack, and 
there's a lot of detail. Um, it's kind of hard to to talk at a high level, in, but uh, but at a, we'll do our best at a high level. Like we talked about, right? There are optimistic rollups and there are zk rollups, and and the zk rollups have some um, benefits in in the technology. And you know, um, I think all of the optimistic rollups can see that, like you know, like they they could also benefit from from that technology. But you know, they already have ecosystems, like they already have like, huge amounts of users and smart contracts and you know, it's not like you just throw that away. And so I guess what, um, you, you know, what uh, optimism is doing is like adding um, what are called validity proofs to the to the optimistic proof. So old model, right? It's like submit a batch of transactions. Someone can submit a proof to show that, that there's wrong. And they, those are called fault proofs, right? Um, at the same time, why not provide a zero knowledge proof in the same way that sort of ZK rollups do to say, hey, look, like, even if we give people another like seven days to submit like a fault proof, like here is a, here is a zero knowledge proof right now, a validity proof that the the last batch of blocks are all valid and they were executed according to the EVM rules. There was no funny business. Here it is, and like you know that that maybe you can trust that. And it's not going to happen overnight, but like you've now got two different sort of um, you know proof models, and you know, it's early days, like that was an RFP, you know, both 01 and, and Risk Zero, um, you know, applied and the PSC is coming to a, to a close actually. And we're starting to talk about what, what productionizing this might, might look like. But I guess the cool thing is that, you know, it's Mina's um, proof system, which is called Kimchi and out the recursion layer is called Pickles, that we already had this amazing proof system, you know, that produces these um, proofs for Mina and is able to, you know, um, provide recursion. To then take that and apply it to like another another chain's logic to be able to yeah prove these transactions like you know compress it all down into like one small proof and then and then and then send that off and so you know like um it was just really um it was it was a really nice coincidence in a way that like that same tech stack um that we could use um for mina we can use for um op um but another like really cool part about it is um, the way we didn't actually talk about this, but the way you write um, smart contracts for Mina is using TypeScript, um, which is um, very cool because ZK can be like kind of mathy if you use some of the like older school libraries, whereas we make it a bit more higher level. And so that works great for a lot of people, right? To be able to, to, to write smart contracts in, in TypeScript. It's not that different from doing it in Solidity, like arguably easier in a way because you have types and high levels. Um, but like, no doubt, there are folks that are going to want to build applications um, that settle to Mina that, that aren't written in TypeScript to like run in the browser, but that are just like general purpose programs. And, you know, part of this OP work was developing a what's called a ZKVM. So a, a virtual machine that can execute code. In our case, it's a MIPS VM. Um, and the code it's executing is Optimism's program, but it could be any um, any executable basically that compiles down to MIPS. So, you know, even though we're using the, you know, Mina's core stack to be able to build something interesting for um, Ethereum or for Optimism, it's going to reap such huge rewards to, for the Mina ecosystem because we're now on the path to, you know, being able to run any arbitrary program, generate a proof and have that settle to Mina. And so it just opens up the, like, when we talked about, you know, the arbitrarily large amounts of compute that get hidden behind like a single snark, um, you know, that's, that's a very, a very cool um, thing. And it's still early days because, you know, the, the focus has been on getting, getting the validity proofs for optimism to work. But, you know, once we um, sort of redirect to make those proofs directly um, be able to settle on Mina, um, it's going to be another like big, big happy upgrade for the Mina protocol. So we're looking forward to that. Do you foresee this specifically with the work you're doing for the optimism stack? Do you foresee this as a um, trans a long term transition from fraud proofs to zk with this intermediate time where both are like kind of being used, um, or is this like really optimism staying like for as its core uh, infrastructure and optimistic rollup, but having these like new zk tools that are available to developers? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Obviously, I can't speak for, you know, OP Labs or the foundation or, or the community and what they're going to like vote for. What 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 optimism have published so far? It's a it's an and not a not a replacement. It's that fault proofs and validity proofs is better than just fault proofs. 
and that like over time as you know the industry the community like is able to assess like the different security and trade-offs of, of those things like you know maybe one gets trusted more or less than the other um and that could mean for example that you know you don't have to wait seven days for a withdrawal if there's a valid zero knowledge proof and like either um you know either a bridge trust that sufficiently because for x years there's never been a like a a, a, a reorg or a or a, a fault a, a fault proof submitted when there was a valid um zkp validity proof there but like that takes time you know and they don't know the future we don't know the future but i think um what's clear is yeah adding adding validity proofs in the form of zk like just is another sort of security tool in the toolbox you know for um for for, for optimistic rollups yeah, well, it's not even just a security tool, right? It's actually like a very useful developer hook. And like the big unlock is obviously in bridging, but I can think of like many other applications where just being able to verify with just the block header that something is valid, like allows you to unlock like really interesting stuff on either a side chain or a side program or whatever. And so I think like we can talk about like the architecture of rollups, um, but... I don't know. I mean, this is just like the clear path forward of like not only what we need in order to get more secure systems, but like in order for the optimism to be able to take advantage advantage of all this like incredible computational magic that's coming out of ZK world. Yeah, I, I think part of what you're keying into there is, um, you know, which which optimism has spoken about a bit. Um, you know, it, it, their version is this super chain messaging, right, that like layer twos can like talk to each other and um, if you have a, a, a valid proof that like, um, you know, up until this block, you can prove that you're, you're up to date. And, and, and so, you know, recipient chain with this proof, can you please go and do, go and do something that like, and that's still a while away, but like that unlocks something pretty, pretty interesting. And you talked about convergence, you know, of like, um, blockchain to a model, like ZK sync has the hyperchain model, right? And if you look at the diagram is exactly the same, <laughs> um, you know, that you have within the layer twos, you have sort of little ecosystems and then they all, they can communicate via Ethereum. But if you do it, um, you know, within, within the super chain or the hyper chain, like that, it's more efficient. So, um, yeah, ZKPs also, you know, un unleashing that, that area of innovation, super interesting. It's not only them, right? It's Starkware, it's Polygon ZK EVM. It's yeah, this is clearly where we're skating. And I'm so excited for you guys to like get the first ZK proof of um, of optimism because I mean, like literally, if you're a believer in the math, which I know you are, I know I am, and I'm pretty sure that everyone listening to this podcast is like, if you believe the math, the second that first ZK proof of optimism is done, like the whole fraud proof system becomes like a necessary crutch of trust that we need in order to transition to like the next phase. But like, I think the second you guys deploy might be like the moment that we herald the end of the optimistic rollup era. Yeah, it's gonna be interesting. Cause like I said, like the, the way Optimism have talked about it in their blogs, like, and I think this is probably following in Ethereum's footsteps is, you know, when there's so much value locked up in your system, like you have to tread very carefully. And of course they will. But I agree with you is that like, once those once those validity proofs start landing and like people try to break them and, and they can't, and it's like, well, why are we waiting? Why are we waiting the seven days? Like, I think it's gonna, it's gonna, you know, like, you know, progress the conversation like quicker. It's like it, mathematically, it's impossible to generate a fraud proof that is valid, or I guess a fraud challenge that is valid. So like, why bother waiting? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it will take time before security researchers are happy, the community's happy, whatever. But I agree when people see over the horizon, like, ah, oh, like instant-ish withdrawals and uh, like, oh, permissionless, like, you know, instant-ish withdrawals, like the pressure to get there. And it's like, okay, what do we got to do to get there? Like, how many, how many audits do we need? Like, how many, like, how big is the bug bounty going to be? Like, yeah, I think things will, I think will probably accelerate too. Yeah. And then once we unlock single slot finality, it's like the whole world is uh, changed again. <laughs> but that's uh, the start of a rabbit hole that we don't have time for. So, Steve, thank you so much for um, for sitting down and sharing everything that you did about Mina, about O of One, and about your background. I mean, so eye-opening for me and, like, really helps me understand just how, like, the 
the greater world computer, like bigger than Ethereum, but the blockchain community is like really skating towards the same goal. So, man, I really appreciate it. Thank you. And before I let you go, can you uh, just let the audience know how they can find you, how they can learn more about Mina? And if they found themselves like really interested and want to get involved, what should they do? Yeah, great. So um, I'm at ZK underscore SJP on, on Twitter. Um, you know, MinaProtocol.com. If you want to get like look at the docs, get started on on writing smart contracts in TypeScript that um, you know that have full privacy. Uh, you know, we're all in Discord, both O One Labs, the Mina Foundation. Um, you know, just search for the Mina Discord. Uh, all of your questions will be answered. There's a super helpful, super active community. Um, the foundation runs um, like grant programs. Like so, if you know, you just got a cool idea. And you just just need a few thousand bucks to get started. Like you know, there's constantly rolling um, programs. Um, yeah, one's called Mean Navigators. One's called ZK Ignite. Um, so yeah, lots of ways to get started. I think yeah, like Discord, Twitter, and, and MeanProtocol.com are good places to start. And how much do you need to know about zero knowledge in order to get started? Um, it, like a a lot less than on any other ecosystem. Let me say that. So the fact that you can develop in TypeScript, right, and the docs you know, take you through the sort of what you need to know to get there. There's learning. It's a new technology. You've got to learn something. But um, yeah, it's as it's as easy as it can be. And actually any developer like can can get started with, with, with a basic app. And then when you, you know, when you go to the next level, the docs and the, the ecosystem are there to support. Well, man, again, I, I can't thank you enough. And I encourage anyone who's interested in developing ZK or developing ZK based applications like spend some time with Mina, like they are the OGs of how ZK will interact with blockchain. And um, man, I'm just so excited to see what comes next. So Steve, thank you so much and uh, have a good day. Yeah, you too. Thanks for having me, Rex. 